0: Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guests who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Hello, welcome to
1: another episode of Making Sense of Mayo. My name is Maddie Metcalf and I'll be your speechtherapypd.com host this evening. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. This episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Dr. Pia Gandhi is our guest speaker this evening. She'll be presenting on tethered oral tissues and her function first model for assessment. Dr. Gandhi does not have any relevant non-financial disclosures. Her financial disclosures include that she'll get honorarium from Speech Therapy PD for presenting tonight. For myself, I receive an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for hosting this podcast, and I do not have any non-financial relationships. We will be taking questions during the podcast this evening. I'll kind of be watching those and asking them as they are relevant to what we are talking about. So you can put those in the chat or the Q&A box. If I don't get your question in the pod or during the conversation, we'll have a Q&A at the end where I'll circle back to those. So this evening, we have Dr. Pia Gandhi. She is a board-certified pediatric dentist specializing in functional pediatric dentistry. Her practice screens all patients for airway, sleep, speech, feeding, growth, and development disorders. Dr. Gandhi has done extensive training beyond her residency in airway development and the diagnosis and treatment of tethered oral tissues. She screens all her patients for airway disorders and oral restrictions, which could impact growth, development, and healthy sleep. She believes in a comprehensive team approach by using the function-first model. She has worked to develop a network of practitioners in the greater Houston area, as well as in her practices. Her in-house team currently consists of a speech-language pathologist, myofunctional therapist, pediatric chiropractor, and international board-certified lactation consultant. This allows the office to provide both convenient and comprehensive care. Now, without further ado, I welcome Dr. Pia Gandhi to this episode of Making Sense of Mayo.
2: Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me this evening. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Yes, I'm so excited to have you on. This is a really interesting topic to me, and I'm so excited to learn more. So can you tell us a little bit about what got you so interested in tethered oral tissues?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I started my practice almost seven years ago and really had no idea that it would take the journey that it's been on, which has really been driven by my need as a mother to find some answers for my older daughter, Syra. She's almost 11 years old. And when I had her, I was a first-time mom and had a lot of goals in terms of breastfeeding and what our newborn journey was going to look like. But similar to many patients that walk into my office, that plan went sideways very quickly. And we really didn't have many answers as to why our feeding journey was not going the way we wanted it to. And ultimately, I couldn't find the answers at the time. 11 years ago, this topic was even quieter than it is today. And so... Basically, I just plugged along like many of our patients are told, and it really caught up with us again when she was about four years old. She ended up having a lot of signs of sleep disordered breathing, snoring, mouth breathing, behavioral changes, and a lot of it went back to the fact that she had oral restrictions that were undiagnosed and untreated Mm -hmm. as an infant, And luckily for me, I am in the dental field and I was in pediatric residency and knew some things about what sleep should look like in a child. But it was really that I was sitting in a course with Dr. Zaghi in 2017, and he was talking about children with sleep disordered breathing and telederal tissues. And he literally described everything about her. Wow. And so I honestly, I started crying in the course because I was just like, wow, this is my child. This is the missing piece. So I came back home at the time. I was already treating some infants for TOTS, but nearly not the way I do it today. And I wasn't really treating many older children or adults. And so Mm -hmm. she was kind of one of my first, but I didn't know what I know about functional approach and collaboration at that time. So my first release on her was when she was four and a half and we did no pre-work, and no post-work, and just did a laser release, and again, it helped a little bit, but really not what we wanted to see, so then I kind of did more education myself with speech-language pathologists and Kairos. and I treated her again at seven and a half, but after doing expansion and Mayo and cairo, and she's now just the most beautiful, thriving child, and really wouldn't be without the collaboration that we had and and the fact that I kind of went down this rabbit hole looking for answers as as a mother, so mm-hmm. she continues to drive my practice and really my love and my passion for this. and you know it took me seven and a half years to have my own child really come into her own, and my mission is that parents shouldn't have to wait that long to mm-hmm. really get to know their child, so that's oh. why we're big on education, and as a mom, it's been really rewarding,
1: oh my gosh. I have goosebumps. That is so beautiful. And I, I can tell you're so passionate about this and mm-hmm. it's so close to your heart, which I think makes a, for a, a really passionate provider. <laughs> yes. So was it really kind of, what I think I heard was like airway concern was really what kind of drove you into this tethered oral tissues realm. So kind of like seeing that relationship firsthand in your daughter.
2: Yes, Absolutely.
1: Man. Well, let's jump into it. Can you tell us what are tethered oral tissues?
2: Absolutely. So tethered oral tissues, probably the most commonly known one is a tongue tie or a lip tie, but there can be cheek ties or buckle ties as well. And tethered oral tissues come in all shapes and sizes. So they don't always look the same. And when we're defining tethered oral tissues, we really recommend looking at it from a functional approach. So Mm -hmm. everyone has a frenulum or the attachment, you know, underneath your tongue to the floor of your mouth or your upper lip to your maxillary bone, but that doesn't define them as a tie. Everyone needs to have a frenulum to attach these things together. What defines them as tethered oral tissue is something causing limited range of motion and a functional deficit. This is why when we talk about diagnosis, we really have to look beyond what it looks like anatomically, and we have to do some sort of functional screening. So movement assessment, measurements, working with a functional provider that is going to assess where the deficits may lie is really how you tease out whether something is a frenulum or a tie. And so that's what we really stress when we're in our practice, but also when I'm educating that we have to look beyond just the anatomy.
1: Yes, I love that. That has been brought up across this podcast series that we can't just look at a structure and say, oh, that's a tie. That's a tie. It's really this marriage of what is the function and what is the structure and how is that impacting the patient? So I'm super excited to hear more about that. We did have a question. What is a buckle tie? And thank you, Renee, for it is B-U-C-C-A-L for buckle.
2: Yeah, so a buccal tie is in the cheek area. It can be in the upper or lower, so maxillary or mandibular. And it's usually, I'm going to now demonstrate, located along sort of the the back molars and attaches to the cheek area. Now, sometimes when they're very restricting, they can, from a dental perspective, cause like gum recession and problems with oral hygiene. Um, But what we've seen is from a body like fascial perspective is that it can really cause a lot of tension in the occipital and like sternocleidomastoid muscles. So on babies in particular that have torticollis, some of them may have some restricted buckle areas and by releasing them, we can really help mm. with some of that range of motion in the neck. And this is where, you know, collaboration comes in because I learned this from my chiros and my PTs. You know, this is not something I learned in like dental education about, the fascial tension. So it's really cool to learn from these other providers, how all these things are related.
1: I love that. That's another thing that's been a common theme is that myofunctional therapy is so interdisciplinary. There's so many pieces, but it makes sense because our bodies are all connected. Totally. <laughs> we Absolutely. can't just look at our one little area in isolation because it's going to be impacted or impacting something else.
2: <laughs> 100%.
1: Since we're on buckle ties right now, what are some of the functional impacts that can be seen from buckle? Well, I guess you've kind of touched on it for the oral hygiene and range of motion and then the body tension. Are there any other functional impacts from buckle ties?
2: Not that I'm aware of. Also, this is the area where we have like the least research in. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it is just sort of anecdotal where we share cases amongst providers and see what the outcomes are like. Some lactation providers have said that it also impacts sort of the seal of the latch for infants so that we're not like leaking out milk or taking in too much air. So quality of latch, but, you know, really what I've seen more consistently is, is more related to fascial tension.
1: I have a question from something I've seen in my own practice. Have you ever seen where they have like two or three ties? Is that just like a normal variation
2: or a variation of normal? Yes. And you know, when we're like procedurally releasing, personally, what I do is I release some of it and then I go back and I feel the tension in there because it can get tricky where you can just go a little too far. Mm. So again, when we're talking about releasing, you want to approach the release from a functional standpoint as well. So, you know, feeling and seeing the tension, not just getting rid of every piece of tissue that's in there.
1: Mm. What are some of the functional impacts that can be seen from ankyloglossia or tongue tie? Yeah,
2: so starting at birth, that's the first sign that we see that a, a tongue is not functioning correctly. Most, most common things, you know, from a mother's standpoint, pain while feeding, mastitis from incomplete breast drainage, blistering or like lipstick-shaped nipples. From a baby standpoint, clicking noises from that incomplete suck-swallow pattern, dissatisfied after a feeding, jaw quivering is a big thing because we're overusing like the wrong muscles in our mouth. And then just like fussiness while feeding. So Mm -hmm. a lot of those like feeding issues, and that can be honestly on breast or bottle. So it doesn't, you know, sometimes babies do great on a breast and then they can't bottle feed. and, And there's some sort of compensatory thing that's covering up their, their symptoms. And then on the toddler standpoint, what we see most commonly is speech delay and difficulty with textured solid foods. So particularly when we ask about feeding, you know, we, we wanna ask specific questions. So I particularly ask about meat eating because that's a very common red flag, but you have to say like, d- can your child eat meat that's not in a hot dog nugget shredded ground form because as a society, we've done a really good job of pre-chewing our food and then giving it to our kids. So we see a lot of difficulty with the chewing and swallowing in that toddler, young childhood phase. And then as we move on, really seeing issues with articulation and depending on where the tie is, it may be harder consonants or like K's and G's if it's a posterior restriction. And then on all ages, airway dysfunction. So even on the infants, you'll see them come in with their mouth open already. So that's early signs of airway disorder, breathing disorder, mouth breathing, but then it can really contribute to an underdeveloped upper jaw very quickly because the tongue is supposed to elevate and push on your maxillary bones, specifically between zero to four years old. And Mm -hmm. so we see a lot of these signs of sleep disorder, breathing and sleep apnea pop up really early, grinding, mouth breathing, movement around the bed, snoring, children should be silent, still sleepers. And then on our adult population, just an exacerbation of what started. So chronic TM joint pain from the overuse of the wrong muscles. Some of our adults are picky eaters still and have speech disorders and then chronic neck tension and, and back pain. And most of my adult patients are sleep apnea patients. Mm. So it's just a 40 year compounding or 50 year compounding of what started during infancy.
1: Can you share a little bit more about how a tongue tie can
2: impact airway? Sure. So our tongue is the integral muscle in our mouth that dictates the growth and development of both our maxilla and our mandible. Our swallow pattern is what brings our mandible forward and dictates its forward growth rather than it growing downward. So every time we swallow, our mandible has the ability to move forward and get out of our airway. From the maxilla standpoint, this is where early treatment is very beneficial because the maxilla growth peaks at age four and then stops growing by age eight. So oh. if we have, if we have a tongue that is not elevating and pushing up on the two, the two palatal bones, then we don't have that pressure to spread out our bones. And what happens is with the lack of pressure, our maxillary bone becomes V shaped or narrowed and very high. Well, that maxillary the bone is also the floor of our nose. So then our nasal passages get narrowed and then we have more resistance for nasal breathing. And then we open our mouth to get more air. The problem is, is mouth breathing oxygenates our body less, especially when we're sleeping, it leads to a lesser quality of sleep. So then we're not falling into a deep restful sleep. And then we just have a cascading effect on all of our things, hormone release, nervous system regulation, for our kiddos, we end up seeing them starting b- bouncing off the walls because they have these ADHD type symptoms because they're just mm-hmm. on overdrive. So that's something in our office we screen for very early is what does the palatal development look like? We're talking a lot about not using pacifiers and using things like myomunchies and baby led weaning because chewing is how we exercise our tongue and spread our jaw out. And so All these things have to happen so early because we know that growth pattern of the maxilla dies down so early in life. So it's really important that we catch these things early.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And then the last tethered tissue that we're kind of discussing tonight, what are some of the functional impacts that can be seen from lip ties?
2: Yeah. So lip ties, again, much more obvious to see. So a lot of times people will come in with a lip tie concern, but they're having issues that are more related to tongue tie, but we always look at all the areas. Lip ties from a dental perspective, when they're wrapping in between the maxillary teeth or on an infant causing notching of the maxillary bone, that can impact some of the growth and development of that maxillary bone because it's putting tension on the bone while it's growing. We do see, so there's you know classification gradings, one through four, one being normal, four being the ones that wrap Around to the incisive papilla, we do see that some of the twos and threes that are not wrapping around will migrate and self-correct. But which rating that, system do you use? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the Kotlow classification. Okay. Yeah, uh, but if they are wrapping around, then they tend to cause spacing between the upper front teeth, which can be again again more of like a hygiene dental issue, and then they can cause some growth impacts on that upper jawbone. Sometimes if they're really tight, they can impact bilabial sounds and some eating patterns, like when you're trying to like take a bite of an apple and need to flare that upper lip out. From an infant perspective, it can impact the seal while feeding. So we don't have like a great duck lip look on the upper, on the upper lip. And so then those babies tend to take in more air while feeding and can also mimic sort of refluxy type symptoms it will impact the quality of the latch. But in the long run, in my opinion, tongue ties are the most impactful and the ones that should be paid closest attention to these other things can definitely contribute like buckle ties and lip ties, but not nearly as much as a tongue tie.
1: I definitely feel like I've seen that in my practice with tongue ties being the most functionally seen, but sometimes those upper lip ties definitely kind of, have a difficult time with getting yes. close mouth posture with saying their P B's Absolutely. and M's and spoon feeding. So they want that like upper lip to come down and clear the spoon instead of biting it. And that can kind of get in the way yeah. sometimes.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So let's get into assessment and diagnosis. How yeah. do you diagnose a tongue tie sure. Dr. Gandhi?
2: Yeah. So when I first started, as I had mentioned with my older daughter, Syra, is, my, my thinking was like, oh, you see a tie, you just laser it and it's good. Like everyone's functioning well. Mm-hmm. We know that that's really not true at all. We really have to look from a functional perspective and we have to incorporate a lot of other providers to make functional success. So this is where the function first model came in and what it is, it's really a four part model and all of my consultations start with, how did you get here? Tell me your story. And that's where we're getting the family involved. And I apologize, I didn't send you an image of the function first model, but it is on my website and it is basically four little bubbles. And the first bubble is a family bubble. And that is where we get our family story. And the reason why that's so important is there's a lot of different education out there on tongue ties. And you want to know what your families are coming in with so that you know what how you need to educate them. And also from a family support aspect, do we have a family that's all on board with ties? Do we have differing opinions? So it really tells you how you're going to approach these patients, which is really important. The -hmm. second aspect of the function first model is a primary care provider. And many practitioners that are in this field shy away from primary care providers, because at least for me, most of the time, that's a pediatrician. And we are still not all on the same page about tethered oral tissues. But my approach is not running away from these people. It is slowly educating them so that they can start to understand what we're doing. Because if there are any parents on this podcast tonight, y'all know that when you chose your pediatrician, you chose them very carefully. And most parents are going to go back to their pediatrician and verify or ask like, "Hey, Mm -hmm. my dentist or my speech language pathologist recommended this. What do you think? So we can't ignore them because they're not going away. We have to acknowledge them and also realize where they're coming from. So at least in Houston, many of our pediatricians have seen bad tongue tie releases, a quick snip or a quick clip that doesn't work. And so in their opinion, tongue tie releases don't work, but they've just seen the wrong tongue tie releases. So we need to step in and re-educate them. So that's my stance on it. I also tell parents, hey, if you go talk to your pediatrician, they may tell you the exact opposite thing. And this is why. So I think it's really important that that we incorporate them. Mm -hmm. The third part of the model is our functional providers. Obviously the most important, it's called the function first model. And these providers for infants fall in two categories, which are mainly a body worker and an oral motor provider. So a body worker can be a combination of, or one of, chiro, PT, or osteopath sometimes craniosacral therapists, things like that. Oral motor therapy usually falls in the lactation or SLP realm. So whether they're bottle or breastfed kind of dictates some of that. And all of my patients see a provider in each category, pre and post procedure for several reasons. One is we need to see if this tie really needs a procedural release. Sometimes it's so obvious that, yes, we know it's going in that direction, but also to prep them for the procedure. So as you mentioned, we need, we can't just isolate one part of the body. It's all connected. So we need the entire body to be ready for the procedure and all the kinks worked out. And then we also need the mouth ready and the tongue attempting to do as much as possible pre-procedure. So we see our functional providers. And then when they come to me for an an assessment a consultation, it's really a three-part consultation it is anatomy, functionality, and symptoms. So mm-hmm. for all ages, we have a symptom intake sheet, which they'll fill out, but I'll also get the story when I when I initially ask the family what's going on. And then we have uh, the grading systems. So for infants, we use the Kotlow for the lip and then the Corolla's classification for the tongue, one through four as well. And we take pictures of all areas, And then I use the Hazelmaker scoring for Mm -hmm. infants. And so that's our functionality testing. So we're looking at suck, we're looking at lateralization, we're looking at elevation, we're looking at extension. And then we put all three pieces together to make a diagnosis of, is this a tie or or not? And to me, putting all those three pieces together, I feel really confident in my diagnosis. I don't feel like I'm over-treating or under-treating. Of course, that comes with time and practice also. And so the same applies for when we're treating kids and adults. The only difference is, is on the oral motor therapy, it's usually myofunctional therapy or SLP, depending on whether there's a speech deficit or not. And we still want them to see the body workers. So when they, when they get to me, there's still a symptom intake form that we're looking at. From the grading system, it's a little bit different because we use Zoggy's functional grading system which is we use like the rom scale i don't know if you're familiar with that like the trmr
1: yeah scale trmr
2: yes. and then the tip and the trmr lps uh-huh. so we, we use that and then of course we correct for compensations by holding the floor of the mouth and then we also look further in that age range because of the airway impact so we're measuring pallets and you know making sure that we don't need to do something like expansion first on the kids and adults, because it's really important on that older age that if we're going to release a tongue tie, there's enough room in the mouth for it. On my older teens and adults, I actually take a CDCT on all of them before to make sure that our airway spaces are in a healthy place before we release a tie, because you can really make someone worse if you release it without knowing what their airway looks like.
1: So with the, so for everybody asking, so it's Kotlo K-O-T-L-O-W and let me double check my spelling of
2: O-R. Y L. I'm I always spell it wrong.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky one. the <laughs> uh, for the other. Here. I will and
2: that's used for like the infant population. Then the Kotlow for the lip can be used for all ages, but then there's a different grading that we use for the kids and adults, which is the zoggies
1: Yes, and, and I, I if you- so if you want to find, if you're listening to the podcast, so I've attached Zoggy's website. And if you just scroll down, you'll see the TRMR visual there. And then the way you get that is you measure their mouth wide open and then you have them put their tongue to spot, which is the little spot right behind your upper teeth. And then you measure that, and then you have them do a lingual palatal suction and measure that, and then you divide the tip divided by the, I think I'm not a math person, I always have to like see which one gives me the percentage, but the tip divided by the max, and then the suction divided by the max, and then there's percentages that fall into above average, average, below average, I think significantly above average. So yeah, I was trying to find one for Kotlow, but I can't find a good... Website for Kotlo. So I'm sorry for people that are in the chat. I love how interdisciplinary your clinic is. That is a dream. So, do you, whenever you're doing, I just work in a private practice, but a lot of my patients do go to an orthodontist or a dentist that provides CBCTs. Okay. Is there like a point that you do not do a release based on like what the CBC, like if it's like, Green. So, for those that don't know, a CBCT is like a three D imaging scan that kind of shows you like what does the airway look like, and they're really cool. <laughs> yeah. And so, if it's like in the red, well, like do, does it have to be in the green for you to? So what
2: I'm so what I'm really looking at is in that space is what's called the posterior airway space, which is uh-huh. the space behind the soft palate and posterior tongue to the spine. And if it's in the red, yeah, I won't do the release because what will happen is the narrowest point is usually in the posterior tongue area. And sometimes, not all the time, but you have to be careful when you release those tongue ties, that posterior space can close even more because now the posterior tongue is slumped back even more. Now, obviously we do myo and all those things to try to get that tongue to be elevated, but the reality is, is when you're sleeping, that's, that's going to close even more. Mm-hmm. And when you have that red on the CT, we already know we're like high risk for collapsible airway. And so those go to an oral surgeon first for potential double jaw surgery. Okay. And and if they don't want to do it, then I tell them you're not a candidate for a release. Personally, I'm not comfortable with the risk. It's just, I've seen other cases where it's been released and that person just got so much worse. So yeah, you have to be very careful in those instances. Obviously, also we're looking at like transverse dimension of the palate, which, you know, Zoggy's done a lot of work on this, but anything under 32 millimeters is pretty risky. Ideally for adults, we're looking at them at 38 to 40 millimeters. But the reality is, is most adults are not there and many adults that come to me are, are not going to go through a full-blown expansion and orthodontics again. Right. I feel I feel very fairly comfortable. If their posterior airway space is good, even if they're narrow, like 30, 31, 32 and up, I'll still do the release. But what I will tell them is if your chief complaint is sleep, then you need to address your jaw size and positioning. Mm-hmm. Because just doing a tongue tie release is not going to relieve that as much. What a tongue tie release will do if you're like a TM joint patient or a chronic neck and back pain, and doing the tongue tie release will help because of the fascial tension. But if you really want to fix your sleep, don't think that just doing a tongue tie release is going to do that because it won't. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, well, number one, listening to you talk, I'm like, man. I- I need to move to Houston now so I can have (laughs) such a great release provider to work with. (laughs) We have some great release providers, but we're definitely kind of missing that like comprehensive, we have like all these like providers and we kind of work together, but I think you have like dream practice over there. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that you also kind of touched on, it isn't just a magic fix. Like there's so many other components that we have to look at. It's not just a tongue tie. It's, all of these other factors that kind of roll into it and just clipping the tongue tie like unfortunately with your daughter like that wasn't the end all be all there was right. more work that needed to be done
0: are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature the certificate tracker the free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. And that kind of brings me, so we had a
1: a comment that this person has seen a lot of tongue-tie releases that didn't help or made things worse since she's taking this course because she's been appalled by the various providers who've been clip happy for about the last 10 Mm -hmm. years. Um, And, you know, we need to educate release providers and others. um, But she said that she still can't make a referral because it makes her uncomfortable because she's afraid of a botched job. Um, Mm. And she's heard about pediatricians who just clip a short frenum immediately when there's Mm -hmm. breastfeeding difficulties. And, but there's like not a clue about the big picture, which like, thankfully, like we have providers like you that are going out and educating pediatricians. And to this person, I would say, reach out to the release providers, find out their methodology, find out what they're doing, find out What are they, you know, looking to for release? I have a really good relationship with the release providers that I use. We have a really good back and forth. We Mm -hmm. talk about, I'll be like, I'm sending you this patient. These are what I'm seeing. Can you check about, you know, X, Y, and Z? And we have a conversation about it. So if you are seeing Mm -hmm. a patient that you think needs a phrenectomy, like reach out and find, talk to your providers and see, you know what they're doing. And hopefully this conversation with Dr. Gandhi will kind of give you some talking points or questions to ask about.
2: Well, and I would say like, to your point, um, communication is key. So Mm -hmm. anyone that you're working with as a release provider, you want to work with someone that's open to communication and honestly open to feedback as well about like what you're seeing. You know, I, I have learned so much from, you know, what what my therapists see. And, you know, they have to be open to conversation, I think in order to really be a collaborative member. So, yeah, I would ask them about treatment philosophy, how they diagnose, if someone is just looking, I would question that because they're going to miss some ties and then they're going to overdiagnose other things as ties that are not. And, and you definitely want there to be some aspect of like functionality, you know, basis, Um, The other thing I would say is know what tool they're using. Not every tool is created equal. Um, So there are lots of different types of lasers out there. Of course, the practitioner skill is very important, but know kind of what tool they're using, not just as a screening for you, but also that's going to dictate some of the aftercare that's needed and what the wound looks like. And so just so you know how to support your patients as well. The other thing I would ask them about is what's their aftercare protocol. I would be very skeptical of any provider that does not see their patients for a Mm post-op. And you'd be surprised how many people don't do that because I see so many patients in my office that got it done somewhere else and end up having post-op visits with me because they're lost. So I think it's just about having conversations. Unfortunately, that's very time consuming. So you do have to invest a lot of your own time in building these networks, but then once you find your people, it just, it works like magic but it Mm -hmm. takes time.
1: Thank you for some of those tips for kind of collaborating and getting this going. If people don't have, um, a team quite yet, but speaking about the different lasers that can be used, that kind of gives us a great segue into what does the phrenectomy look like?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I will talk about like the infant population first, um, because, because the techniques are different and providers really should take clinical courses in, if they're going to treat everybody in in all the arenas, because you can't like interchange the techniques, in my opinion. So an infant release is is quick. I mean, um, I personally, I use a CO2 laser, I use the light scalpel laser, which is extremely precise and gentle. And so our infants are awake, they're in a swaddle, they wear little safety glasses, we are using just a little bit of topical numbing gel. And we're lasering for about 15 seconds. That's a lip and a tongue together. 15, about 15 seconds. This laser in particular is, you know, we don't really see any like uh, heat inflammation around the surrounding tissues because it, again, it's not, there's another laser called a diode laser that is very hot. So that's a little bit different, but overall procedure is quick, minimal to no bleeding. Again, some of that is dictated by the fact that all of my babies do body work. So everything is really nice and loose. All of the All of the veins and and blood supply is all kind of out of that frenulum. So it's a very clean procedure. And what's different, which you probably are not going to find in most of your areas, because as far as I know, I'm the only practitioner doing this, but I suture infants. So after I'm done with my release, most practitioners are just going to take some pictures. Baby's done. They feed right after, like we have a nursing room where they can bottle or breastfeed um, right afterwards. They don't need to put anything on the wound or anything like that. But I will put a dissolvable stitch or two in each area that I release. Only adds about anywhere from a minute to a minute and 20 seconds to the procedure. And the reason we do that is because it minimizes the amount of stretching that the parents need to do. It also makes wound healing more predictable, just like it does on kids and adults. So when we are treating an infant uh, tie, we are releasing just the frenulum we are not releasing into the muscle or anything like that you really want to release until you don't feel any tension under the tongue and hopefully that tongue starts lifting up right away from a lip perspective you you know when we release we release all the way up into the vestibule but really you want to check again it's about functionality can that lip cover the nostrils the minute it can you're done releasing and then similarly like i said about the buckle ties We'll release just the ties that we need to to feel that the tension is gone. Um, And like I said, baby feeds right after does need pain medication for about 24 to 48 hours. We offer homeopathic options such as Arnica or a weight-based dose of infant Tylenol. We let parents decide what they want. There is no restriction on feeding, but we do restrict pacifier use after the procedure because we want to teach these tongues to lift up and move around, not be held down. And then we see our patients for three post-op visits a few days after the procedure to teach them stretches. So because of the stitches, they do no stretches for about three days. And then we teach them stretches that need to happen four times a day, every four hours approximately. And then we see them at two weeks and four weeks for visits. During that duration, they're also seeing their body workers and their oral motor therapists so that we get everything moving the way it's supposed to. And then from the Kid and adult perspective, I do a functional frenuloplasty technique, which is taught by Dr. Zagi. I'm an affiliate of the Breathe Institute, so I am closely related to all their training and what they do. Functional frenuloplasty technique, by definition, is myofunctional therapy before and after and placing sutures. So any other type of release is not called a frenuloplasty. It's called a frenectomy. Because if there are no sutures, then it is not a frenuloplasty technique. So also something to know about, like, if you're asking providers what they do. In my opinion, placing sutures is the gold standard. And so for the kids and adults, a little bit different, same laser. Um, We do offer all types of sedation as well. So nitrous, oral sedation, IV sedation, just no sedation, depending on the patient we do locally numb with an an injectable local for those patients. And then again, we're releasing to where we need to, to get functionality. So it's really important that they work with Mayo first, because during the procedure, I'm asking them tip to the spot, hold your, they're holding their suction while I'm lasering. So I can see how much I need to release. And then we're measuring that ROM scale during the release to see, have we released enough? Because again, You don't want to go overboard. The more you release, the more likely you get scarring and healing that's not optimized. So you want to be as conservative as possible while getting functionality. Similarly, those procedures recovery-wise, most of my kiddos go to school and normal activity that day, pain medication as needed, and then they're following up with their therapist as well. Similarly, they'll see me for post-ops, but just two post-ops a week and three weeks out. You talk so much
1: about the work before and the post op. Can you kind of give us a little bit of um, what does pre work look like, and then what you recommend for like that post op care?
2: Yeah, so pre work wise with Mayo, um, most of the time they're doing average. I would say is about four to six sessions before. Obviously, this is dependent on how dedicated they are to home exercising and things like that. But they're you know they're usually seeing their therapist weekly. And main things that we're working on are um, minimizing compensations. So a lot of like the jaw lateralization that happens or the neck engagement. And when they're elevating the floor of their mouth, things like that. Um, And then we're really working on strengthening the tongue muscle as much as possible because the more defined that muscle is, the more I know where I'm going. And a huge part of that is the lingual palatal suction. I mean, I want my patients to be able to hold that suction for two minutes straight Mm -hmm. because I'm having them hold it approximately 30 seconds at a time while I'm working on them while they're numb. So if they know it like that, they can be numb and and their tongue still does it. And so that's a cut, like that's a a minimal requirement for me. And then of course we're working on nasal breathing and, and lip closure. So I won't none of my therapists will clear a patient so what we do in our office is on every age we reach out to the functional providers and get clearance before the procedure and if they're not cleared by their functional provider I won't do the procedure so what we're looking for is we have minimized compensations as much as we can we have strengthened particularly the posterior aspect of the tongue by being able to hold that suction and we also are have been consistent and dedicated to our pre-therapy appointments because if we are not committed pre to coming into our appointments, there's no way they're doing it after. And the after is just as important for healing and function. It doesn't stop. Like it doesn't stop at the procedure. Mm -hmm. I always try to say like the procedure is like this much. Everything else has to happen also. Yes. So um, those are the things we're looking for on babies. We're looking for relief of tension as much as possible, resolve torticollis as much as possible, like cranial work so that we, where we don't have a lot of plagiocephaly. Or again, babies are a little more time sensitive, so we don't want to wait a long time, but undoing um, as much of the compensations as possible. What kind of, is it, do you
1: recommend, so you talked a little bit about aftercare and finding out the provider's aftercare
2: of their procedures, What kind of aftercare do you prescribe? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, all ages need stretches, even with stitches being placed. And so for all ages, they generally start manual stretches about 72 hours after the procedure. For babies, it's a simple like lift and stretch and hold for four seconds.
1: Hold on, it's 72 Um, hours after the procedure, but that's with your sutures.
2: Yes. Right. With sutures. Okay. If there were no sutures, you start day of.
1: Mm -hmm. And you do sutures in, I'm sorry if I missed this, but you do sutures in all of your patients. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Birth birth through adults. Okay. Unless something goes unplanned, which in pediatrics can always happen, Uh but I would say 99% of them get sutures. So that's where the 72 hours comes in. Um, So for babies, it's a simple lift of the lip hold for four seconds, covering the nostrils. And then the tongue, it's either like a forklift with two fingers or a single horizontal, like lift with one finger, just depending on how they can get in there. Mm
0: -hmm. And that
2: has to happen every four hours during the daytime. Pretty similar with the older population, even though their Mayo will give them like other exercises to do. I have parents or the patient themselves do a manual stretch on themselves, um, by doing that same like tongue lifting technique. So because not what, just
1: doing the suction, but like actually going in and no. still doing that manual on themselves. Okay. Yeah.
2: And I actually like the manual. I know you guys, a lot of our, a lot of our providers also do like the forklift type thing. Mm-hmm. I actually like, like, uh, straight, like stretch back towards the throat. Yes. Mm, and the so reason just pulling why the
1: tongue back, yes.
2: Almost, I always tell parents look like you're choking them with their tongue. (laughs) It's terrible, Uh but it's like the the right visual. The reason I like that is I find that reattachment happens most often at the junction of the base of the tongue and the floor of the mouth. That little spot is where I see reattachment happen. And I find that by doing that like straight stretch back, it really opens up that area.
1: Yeah. I could feel that on myself versus like the forklift versus like pushing back. It was definitely a much more intense stretch. And I mean, the
2: kids hate it, but I'm like, do you want to do this again? Nobody wants to do this again. So that is what I instruct. And then other than that, I leave the movement and the functional exercises to my other providers. Mm -hmm. But I'm also lucky that I have amazing providers in the office and outside the office that have great instruction. So I don't need to give more to my patients. Mm-hmm. So I more take care of the wound healing and they take care of the function.
1: Yes. I love that. I always tell my friends, I'm like, please give them what you want them to do for wound healing. And I will work on yes. the neuromuscular reeducation yes. and the functional exactly. improvements.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, oh man, that is fabulous. Learned some new things that I'm going to go talk to my fornectomy provider about. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> So you've touched on it a lot throughout, but what are some of your providers that you collaborate with for patients who you do phrenectomies on?
2: Yeah, so definitely heavily in the infant population, the body workers, Some sometimes more so than like the lactation and SLPs, because I find that that makes a huge impact on uh, procedural outcomes and procedural readiness. So in the Houston area, it's the chiros know most about phrenectomies and ties. We have a couple of PTs and a couple of osteopaths, but it's really the chiros. And um, there is a certification from the ICPA. So if you're looking for a pediatric chiropractor in your area, you could look up the, the ICPA website. It's like the International chiropractic pediatric association or something along those lines. Yeah. And so oh you got it. Okay. I did. And, yep. so, and then for people um, listening
1: I'll just say really quick let me see if I can find the full name. I'll come back to it. <laughs> okay.
2: So that's a good resource and those are the people that have had more pediatric training and have had more exposure to tox. Technically any chiropractor can treat a baby, but you really want to kind of vet out and couple of questions that I ask when a provider approaches me, or I'm thinking of collaborating with them is, do they work in the mouth? If they don't work in the mouth, then they don't really do this. That's not mm-hmm. to say they can't be trained to work in the mouth. Now, some things to note is there are some state regulations as to whether a Cairo can work in the mouth, but if they can't, then they usually instruct the parents on how to do it. So that's one thing to note. I see a question about craniosacral therapists. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want me to yeah, jump that, on it. But- So craniosacral therapists, yes, some of them are are chiros, some of them are massage therapists. One thing to know is craniosacral therapists are great. The advantage to doing a chiropractor that does craniosacral therapy is they can do a manual adjustment as well. So you are going to get better spinal alignment. That's also where when we talk about PTs, PTs are great, but a muscle is attached to a bone. So if a bone is out of alignment, then that muscle is only gonna be able to be corrected so far. So that's kind of why I like the kyros. but I think it's also dependent on where you're located and what you have available. So I teach a course with a Cairo and a Mayo and an IVCLC, and we all talk about ideal versus real because mm-hmm. we are all living in reality and not all of us have access to like all these providers. So my philosophy is some is always better than none. So use what you have and if you have a provider that's open to more training, then like work on that, but at least getting them some sort of body work is going to benefit them more than nothing. Yeah. And then adults and kids can also really benefit from Cairo and PT. I mean, it's all connected and honestly, they have more effects from the ties because it's been years and years. So we do highly encourage that as well. But really, on the older kids and, and adults, it's myo all the way. I mean, that's, our, that's what we stress, and that's what I will not negotiate on a procedure is myo first. Does everyone do the body work? No, on that population. Yeah. And again, I, when I'm choosing myos, I wanna know what their protocol is, I wanna know where they trained. I love that here in Houston, I collaborate with a lot of SLPs that are also myofunctional therapists. So we get like both in one, and that's ideal for our kiddos that have speech speech dysfunction, but we need them to do myo. But yeah, I want to know where your training is. I also want to know your philosophy on on tots because mm-hmm. it's all it's all over the place, and um, yeah. you know we we need people that are on the the same page that are diagnosing correctly so that we don't miss them or over-diagnose.
1: So the um, ICPA is the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association, um, if you want to look into that. And so Caroline asked, do you find that some patients complete the malfunctional therapy and then they do not need a release? Yes, it does Mm -hmm. happen.
2: And some of those cases, when they come for a consult, I will say, I don't know if you need a release. Mm -hmm. Most of those are posterior ties um where you know we just may be lacking some muscle tone um also sometimes it's a space issue so if we have a narrow upper jaw our tongue like just can't get in there you know so absolutely yes and uh this is where working with great providers that um you are not intimidated or feel like you can't say like hey I don't think they need a release and having a provider that's like Open to that sort of conversation, Um, but yes, it happens. Even on babies, it happens where they're having feeding feeding difficulty. But I mean, if they're walking into your office like this, they're going to have feeding difficulty. Sometimes, if we just straighten them out with some body work, they do great. And so,
1: so for those that are just listening, what? Sorry, I'm making
2: a. Gesture.
1: Yeah, She yeah. was kind of modeling like what a torticollis baby would look like. And then saying like, you know, if we straighten them out and then she straightened her head back up to medline. So yeah.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, definitely again, this is where, this is why like we use something like the function first model because we don't want to be over treating.
1: Mm-hmm. So kind of jumping onto this over treating, I know we kind of touched on it at the beginning, but we did have another question to kind of clarify. And I think it is a really important point is there a difference between a tie and a frenulum?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. So a frenulum is a piece of connective tissue that is not restricting the movement of the tongue or the lip or causing functional symptoms. That's just a frenulum. That's an anatomical piece of tissue that we're supposed to have. Frenulum is considered a tie if it is restricting range of motion and causing functional symptoms. This is why when we do our diagnosis we have to put all the pieces together.
1: So at your practice, do you have people mostly coming in for like suspecting ties or is it kind of like bouncing around like your PT that's works with you is like, "Hey, go see this person and have them assess you for
2: a tongue tie." Kind of how does that work? Yeah, so it's a combination. Um I have people that seek me out that I mean parents are The best advocates for their children. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the the parent education connection sends a lot of parents to me, even if they've been told otherwise from other providers. Um, Then I do get a lot of referrals from functional providers. And then we are a full-fledged pediatric dental practice. So we screen every single patient for ties. And so I have two other pediatric dentists that work for me and so they're screening all the patients they see. And then if, they, if there's a functional concern, meaning parents are reporting symptoms, all of our patients fill out a screening form, all of our patients fill out a sleep questionnaire, then my pediatric dentists who do not do any of this will refer them to me for a consult. So it's kind of a multifactorial referral source, if you will. Mm-hmm. Most of my adults come from um, adult dentists Here in Houston, that don't treat ties but know about airway. I have a couple of oral surgeons and sleep medicine docs that refer to me, and then a couple of orthodontists. And that's literally two in the entire city of Houston. But wow, they're probably the most resistant right now, is our orthodontists.
1: Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah. Um, This is not on our question list, and you might not want to tackle it, but. Why do you think that tethered oral tissues is such a hot topic and do you have any ideas about how we can kind of get a little bit more of like a standardized cohesive approach among providers?
2: Yeah. So, it's funny that you bring this up. Last week I had a patient that came in for routine care didn't she didn't come in last week but a while ago and we screened her kid for ties like we do for everyone and I brought it up to her. I actually recommended therapy. I didn't even recommend a Release. Well, she went on Facebook and just went crazy about me over diagnosing, and there were over a hundred comments. Not wow. good. Not good comments. And if there were pediatricians, there were other, you know. And it just brought up how much of a controversial topic this still is. And my perspective on it is, it starts from our education system in all of our fields, SLP dentistry, medicine, we are not universally educated on this. And um, because our research is still relatively new and we know that education systems take forever to catch up, I don't anticipate that this is gonna change anytime soon. I think from a physician standpoint, when they are not trained in something, they just don't believe it's a thing. And as I had touched on earlier, they've also seen some bad releases so their view on it is is skewed, right? And some of them you can't blame because they're they're taking from what their experience is. I just I, I wish they would be more open to the changes that have been made in the field. So from my perspective, yeah, what we're doing is by sending them completion letters of their patients that are now thriving. Maybe we're starting to change their perspective, and they can see what their patients look like post-procedure. I love um, that idea of completion letters. Yeah. And we do it on all of our patients. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, and so it's a it's a backdoor way of saying, look, see, you know, without saying mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, we did a good job. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and then I think continuing to do what we do, things like this, educating within your own field, because I know from a pediatric dental standpoint, there are not a lot of functional pediatric dentists. And so- I think what happens is sometimes when you're a provider in your field, you get worried about things like competition. Oh, I don't want to share this because what if I lose patients? What if my next door SLP becomes an expert in TOTS? There are so many people that need help that honestly, the more awareness we bring to it, the more people that are treating it, the more we're going to be, have a chance to universally educate on it. I love that. the more we keep it in the dark and try to keep it to ourselves and make it our specialty only, we're still gonna have this like controversial, some people know about it, some people don't. Mm-hmm. So my, my perspective is, if you know about this, if you're passionate about it, spread the word. to Whoever will listen, just spread the word. And that's kind of, that's kind of how I think we'll, we'll make strides. But be prepared to get resistance. I mean, I had a hundred plus comments Uh, how about how awful I am? So you, you need to really love this stuff and really believe in it. And I think, you know, the message will start to spread. It's already, you can already see the difference, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's happening. It's just going to happen slowly.
1: And big change does happen slowly. So we just got to embrace it.
2: (laughs) Um, I hope I answered your question. I kind of, no,
1: I I think that was a really great answer. (laughs) And I think that it, you know, I, yeah, no, I think that was an excellent answer and it, uh, motivated me to keep trekking along. <laughs> and so we did have a question, um, and you kind of touched on it again, but what does a bad release look like? Like, what do you mean by a bad release?
2: <clears throat> yeah. So, and it's not just about the release, it's about doing the pre and post work, right? Yeah, Because a release can clinically look beautiful and not a over, not aggressive, and not under-release, but if you haven't addressed any of the muscle tone and the functionality, then you're not going to see much of a change. So Mm -hmm. part of it is a bad approach to treatment, maybe, is not incorporating functional providers, in my opinion. But honestly, most of those releases look really messy too, because the muscle is not defined. So, I mean, for lack of better words, some of these releases look like chopped meat. There's no defined muscle. There's no defined like start and stop point. They're really wide. Like, I mean, I have some pictures that are just, I mean, they're scary to look at. You know, you really want to keep that release as narrow as possible. We should not have like, you know, again, I'm not, pointing is not going to suffice here, but, you know, so when I see a super aggressive release where they're really wide, they're taking up, like, I would say when I do a release, we are maybe a quarter width of the, of the tongue. I don't know. I just, um, I, again, visual, the visuals are hard when you're mm-hmm. on a podcast, but, um, you want to keep it as conservative as possible. So the wound should look pretty vertical. We don't want horizontal looking wounds. And it should make like a little diamond shape, right? Diamond, Exactly. Little yeah. diamond. But I also tell practitioners like, don't aim for the diamond. If it's done without mm. a diamond, like then it's done, you know, don't keep going. So it looks like a diamond. So the diamond is a good guide, but it's not the end-all be-all. The other thing that we see is that people will go too deep, you know, far into the muscle. Sometimes you have to release a little bit of the muscle, but again, not on babies. And that is mainly on older kids and adults where the muscle itself is restricting. But again, that's like a millimeter or two. You're not like diving into that. It should not look like, like a black hole. And then in my opinion, like there should really be sutures placed.
1: Yeah. And that has not been my experience with infants. They, all of the providers in our area just do a, I think they have a water lace laser. Yeah. yeah um, sure. And they don't put the, the sutures in. But yep. I really like that idea because those aftercare stretches are a doozy for a fresh mama.
2: Yeah. Well, especially what's nice is like they get to go home that day and for the first three days, just comfort their baby and feed yeah. them and not to stick their fingers in there. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny because I started doing the sutures in babies a little over a year ago. And I am now treating, you know, younger siblings and things like that. And when I tell the parents like, Oh, this is a change we've made because, you know, and they're like, Oh my God, yes. We don't have to like get back in there right away. I mean, it is for for them. It's like the most amazing thing.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so neat. And then Beth, you kind of mentioned that your um, dentist does a laser without sutures. That's what my dental provider does. And we see really good results with that. Yes. But I will say, I'll let Dr. Gandhi speak on to this, but the aftercare is very different with a laser release and no sutures versus a frenectomy that has sutures placed.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, well, first of all, the wounds heal faster and more predictably. So we see a lot more of the Vertical wound healing, because it's already started once that, you know, once the three days are in and they have to start the stretches. It's also nice because we're not, um, we used to instruct on infants, a stretch in the middle of the night too. So those parents were having to stretch in the middle of the night. Whereas when we place the suture, because that primary healings already happened, they only need to do daytime, Mm -hmm. especially on the older infants where they're like sleeping through the night. We're not disrupting their sleep by having to do a stretch.
1: Have you noticed a, a difference in the healing process in putting the sutures in the
2: infants versus not? Just that the wounds are healing quicker. Okay. And I mean, they all they all look really good. Yeah, yeah they all look oh, really good.
1: That is so awesome. So I'll give everybody a couple more questions or a couple more minutes to see if anybody has any more questions. But oh my gosh, Dr. Gandhi, this was amazing. <laughs> I learned so much from you. It awesome. was so great. Thank you so like much I, for having me. Oh yeah, I'm so excited to go share with my for next week provider about like pushing <laughs> back versus that work lift. Like I think that's so interesting. Yeah, this was great. I do just want to put like a little disclaimer out there for because we are predominantly speech pathologists that are watching this, yes. and so once again. Tethered oral tissues is part of differential diagnosis, as Dr. Gandhi shared. Not every patient that comes in and gets an assessment needs a frenectomy after they've had therapy. In my practice, same goes for infants. Sometimes we need to work on strengthening or improving their latch or their suck, and we can do that without a frenectomy. And so, not every single patient you see is going to fall into this category, but we can use this. We can use frenectomy providers as a way to kind of. that differential diagnosis and determine if there is a structural deficit that's impacting their function. Would you agree with that, Dr. Gandhi? (laughs)
2: Exactly. Well said. Well said.
1: So perfect. I didn't see any other questions come in. We're getting lots that was informative. You are amazing, (laughs) Dr. Gandhi. And thank you so much, Dr. Gandhi. This was so great. And you have me super excited about
2: all that is to come. (laughs) Anytime. Thanks so much for having me again. This was awesome.
1: Absolutely.
0: for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.